Hi, I'm Calvino. Hi, I'm Camille. My name's Harini, and this is The News Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to the 22nd episode of the news podcast. Today we are commemorating Remembrance Day by talking about the role of women in the First World War, specifically by talking to one of our social media reps, Annabelle Saunders, about Vera Britton and the way that she writes about the First World War and the women's role in it. We also want to put out a small disclaimer that being my sister and that we were raised in the same house, we sound exactly the same. So if at any point it sounds like one of us is speaking twice, that's why. <laughs> so to give some context about the period, um, there are a lot of myths that are said about women and the role and their role during the First World War, first of which being that many women were already employed previously, for example, in textile mills following the Industrial Revolution. However, that isn't to say that there wasn't an absolute boom in the employment of women. For example, by 1918, almost one million women in the UK were employed in munitions work alone. But one of the reasons that this was taken so much more seriously was because it was significantly more dangerous than the already often dangerous jobs that they were doing. Um, and there were numerous explosions in these factories, which leads to another job that women started doing, which is often police work, which is not often uh, recognised when we talk about women in the period. So they were often known as women's patrols and actually were mainly policing other women, partly due to the actual disparity between the number of men and women at the time due to men going to war, but also to check what women were bringing into the factories and making sure that they weren't risking more explosions by the kinds of metal or the the objects that they were taking in with them to their work. But they were also policing train stations, parks, streets, and even pubs. There were also a large number of railway drivers there were up to 50,000 railway drivers that were women by 1918. However, like with many other professions, they weren't allowed really to return once men had come home from war as it went back to the jobs that they had originally earned. It's also interesting, though, because it shows a bit more about women's job security coming through for the first time. So, for example, because of the these million women working just in the munitions factories alone, we also saw the rise in daycare nurseries that came. So there were 100 new daycare nurseries that were built specifically for women working in munitions factories so that their children could be taken care of while they were working. However, it is one of the only job sectors that actually catered for women in this way. Um, but one thing that might link quite nicely to uh, Vera Britton's work and what she writes about is a case of Elsie Ingalls, who was a Scottish nurse, who when she tried to sign up for the war was told, my good lady, go home and sit still and then got herself to Serbia and worked as a frontline nurse until the end of the war. So coming on from that, Annabelle, if you could give us a short, int like a, a little introduction to what Vera Britton's writing about in her book. Yeah, so you touched on something there that um, is going to be a massive theme through what I'm going to talk about, which is um, women being called to action in the time of crisis and then immediately ignored afterwards. Um, so that's the thing that really struck me about Vera Britton's story. Um, which was that she, along with um, everyone of her generation, sacrificed so much for the war. But then, um, interestingly, on her return back to university and um, back home, um, she was immediately treated in a very similar way um, than she was before the war, even though she'd obviously demonstrated a lot of heroism and incredible expertise during the war. So in 1914, when war broke out, um, Vera Britton was 20. So her age bracket throughout the book is something that I can relate a lot too as a 24 year old graduate and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will probably be in a similar age bracket um so the war covers four years that she should have been at Oxford studying English um she's literally a student 
during the entire thing, obviously, but she pauses her studies to go and be a nurse on the front lines during the war. Um, yeah, so she's a really interesting person to talk about. What was the name of the book? Because I'm sure our, our listeners would be interested. So this is um, Testament of Youth. It's a chunky book, but it's brilliant. Um, and she's also published a couple of other ones um, about her later life. And she's also got a lot of brilliant poetry and journalism that you can check out if you like the sound of her work. Just to check, is it autobiographical? Then? Is it all true? Or are there elements of fiction? Yeah. She writes? It's entirely autobiographical. And the poetry is also based a lot on her personal life. Um, so it's a good read. It's sort of interesting and easy to read and she's quite funny and satirical in bits of it but it's entirely just a story of her own life yeah so obviously the war was a a massive component of her life um what was I guess if we talk about it chronologically what was her life like before the war broke out yeah so um if you think about the dates the beginning of the war being 1914 um she was obviously um, coming out of school and applying to university and she came from a relatively privileged middle-class background and we're coming right out of the Victorian sort of image of what young women should or shouldn't be allowed to do um, so she's got some interesting stories about um, her first dates with the guy she likes being chaperoned by awkward family members and this kind of thing um, and so yeah she talks about her first sort of train rides being allowed to um, travel independently um, and lots of there are just lots of little anecdotes about a sort of very restricted view of what women of her age were allowed to do were expected to do and what was sort of shocking and scandalous which obviously got massively upturned when they were called to action to be nurses um, on the front lines um, but from the very beginning of the book there is some incredibly frustrating and frustratingly relatable um, moments of misogyny in her education um, and one of them is the application process to get into Oxford to read English. Um, so she um, applied to Somerville which is one of the first women's colleges in Oxford and um, this already is a pretty brilliant moment that she was able to apply to it and go um, but the entrance process was really complicated because she wasn't taught some of the subjects like Greek at school that the boys were being taught but they're still part of the entrance process so just on the, at the beginning of the book just this sort of university admin felt kind of relatable <laughs> in a frustrating way um so she at some point says more than once I dissolved into angry tears of baffled despair um, at the the complications of the application process that she obviously didn't know anybody in the system who could help her with it her parents weren't particularly supportive of the idea of her studying because it was scandalous and not very sort of proper um, even though her brother was at Oxford um, and she points out the complications of coming from a household where no one knows anything about women's colleges and the application process which I think is something that is still a problem in universities today is the advantage that you have coming from either a school or a household where we already know something about universities or somebody you know has been through the process versus people in schools yeah. or areas where yeah there are fewer applicants so I thought that was an interesting parallel um she's constantly underestimated by teachers and staff about whether her abilities will get her in but she still goes for it and she goes for the scholarship and she gets in which is a a victory <laughs> yeah we're, we're pleased about that um and even in terms of trying to apply she's studying um 
in the sort of back room of the house while social events are happening. Um, she can't afford to buy books except out of her dress allowance, um, which is the only money she has access to, or sort of random books given um, to her as Christmas presents by family members who sort of vaguely get that she's trying to study something and just get her sort of <laughs> vaguely literary things. Um, so through sheer determination, she does manage to get to university. But that's something that, yeah, is a part of the story that I thought was an interesting starting point. Do you know what her um, motivations for applying to university were? Like, obviously, a lot of women, at, you know, during that time period wouldn't have been applying to university, or wouldn't have even thought that was a possibility for them. Yeah, absolutely. So in her case, it was firstly because she was just very intellectually curious and wanted to keep studying um, literature. She was obviously really inspired by her older brother and his friends who were interested in having similarly academic conversations and had access to all this information and um, guidance from Oxford so she kind of wanted to join similar circles um, and equally the alternatives to going to university and trying to get an education were basically staying at home playing bridge <laughs> with your <laughs> unmarried aunt or immediately getting married to the nearest man so that you can have some kind of independence um, and these two things didn't super appeal to Vera Britain so um, that was one of the main motivations for going to university and you can see throughout the book that it really sparked a sort of independence from her family that um, I think she was very grateful for. Yeah 100%. So how do you feel like that experience changes when she then goes to war? I mean, obviously, geographically, how does she become a nurse if she was started as an English student, first of all? Yeah, so that's a brilliant question. Um, she essentially starts getting involved in the war because her um, brother and her fiancé have signed up and she feels like um, she's increasingly feeling powerless about the situation that they're in because she's staying at home studying texts that were written hundreds of years ago doesn't feel like she's being super productive and has all this sort of anxious energy about her family um, and and her fiance being at war and that she's got nowhere to put it so she starts off um, by literally darning socks in a local um, medical service for soldiers who are coming back with diseases from the early stages of the war um, and increasingly she then becomes more and more involved becomes a VAD and ends up serving in London um, in France she treats um, in Malta as well she treats British soldiers French soldiers and even German prisoner of war soldiers at some point on the French front lines and so sort of very quickly as the war progresses um, she gets dragged into increasingly dangerous and difficult situations and the thing that you've got to remember as well is that even though on the return from the war the soldiers were treated in a different way in terms of heroism to the nurses, they were on the same front lines facing very similar dangers. So when she's on the front lines in the north of France, um, the hospital that she's in is still targeted for bombing. Um, she still has to cross active war zones to try and help soldiers. Um, and obviously it's a state of complete crisis in a similar way to the rest of the front lines. So her experience of witnessing war is incredibly dangerous in and of itself it's not as removed from it as we might believe it to be obviously when she's in London and she's treating soldiers who managed to be brought back to the UK for their treatment it's still London it's still being bombed and targeted um, so it's not as removed of a job as it might feel and the overlaps with the soldiers is quite intense um, but yeah so 
at the beginning of the war, as you say, like the sort of easing from being a student into a nurse is just as shocking to her family and to her peers and teachers as trying to study was. Um, it's apparently very scandalous and improper for a woman, but she goes for it anyway. Um, and yeah, it's something that she ends up finding a lot of purpose in. Um, and she is fully just by the end of it, a qualified nurse in spite of the fact that when she comes back to England, she's treated in an incredibly patronizing way by the pre-existent nurses who were trained before the war because she seemed to have sort of taken like a sped up crash course of nursing, which makes sense, but also the people she was treating were incredibly complicated patients, what with them being soldiers on the front lines. Um, so as a young woman, she's also treated in a patronizing way by the older women who are part of sort of the old, somewhat more um, conservative, society that she was brought up in yeah do you think the type of misogyny she faced was just different in terms of the people that were being misogynistic or was it in terms of the actual form yeah so um there's lots of levels of the of the misogyny that she faced and some of it feels more like um historical that I don't think we'd necessarily have the same experience of now so some of the prejudice against her um being in education or trying to have a career seems a bit outdated some of the stuff that she then um campaigns for or sort of has to really try hard to get to like um near the end of the book there's a conversation about um women officially being allowed to graduate from universities and having the same degrees as men and this is something that like I haven't thought of in my education at all that doesn't seem to have that same sort of blatant yeah. difference in what you're rewarded with when you've done the same amount of work at university um, but some of it is worryingly and weirdly similar to the kind of misogyny that we see now so in actually in the earlier part of the book she's on the train for the first time by herself she's 14 and there's a scene in which um, I say a scene is obviously from her real life um, where she ends up in a carriage alone with a man who goes, oh, thank God that last person's left. Now we can have a conversation. And it's oh incredibly God. creepy oh. and kind of corners her. And she has to physically run into a carriage with another woman, leaving her bag behind and then goes back into the carriage with the woman to rescue the bag when the guy's left. But like the fact that he's the fact that obviously like he's hitting on her because she's alone in a carriage train is horribly something that could happen now and um the fact that he sort of goes oh shame you're 14 you look older or something is a kind of comment the unnecessary misogynist terrifying comment that women receive all the time now on public transport and it seems insane that this was written a hundred well it wasn't written a hundred years ago but it was her experience was a hundred years ago and yet the same problems happen now yeah <laughs> there's lots of moments like this it just not changed <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting like comparison. Yeah. And as you say, it's a hundred years ago. Do you think that given that, yeah, the train scene, I agree. I think it's horrifyingly really? familiar, even if that specific thing has never happens to, to someone listening, you can definitely imagine it happening to you. It's certainly it's something that women are afraid of when you, you know, are by yourself on a train at night. I think we can definitely all relate to that. Um, do you feel like in that sense, from the way that she's writing about misogyny then compared to us experiencing misogyny now, do you think that it's much more a structural change in terms of laws changing, you know, obviously not council culture, but things like being politically correct in the workplace, things that people feel like they can't say is more the thing that's changed much more than men's actual attitude and their actual feelings towards women. 
Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think some of the way she writes about it feels very modern. Um, I guess sort of women have been as pissed off about the same things for a very long time as they are now. <laughs> so um, even though she was brought up in a very sort of like, quote unquote, polite society in which sort of there are certain things women are and aren't allowed to say and especially put down in print and then publish. Um, obviously she published the book a lot later in her life and so much has happened in the years since the war that that's probably changed a little bit as well but um, yeah it sounds like there are people in the book sort of personalities that crop up that are pretty much identical to people you might run into now so really unnecessarily patronizing older men in education sort of like not understanding the circumstances to why you might be struggling with the content for example PTSD um but yeah and sort of this random man in the train and um sort of entitled dudes in the law society being unnecessarily cruel in a debate without understanding why this might be an emotional topic for the person speaking this kind of thing sounds like it hasn't particularly changed and the people who are actually perpetuating the misogyny continue to do so today um and similar people like Vera Britton have to find ways of talking about it and coping with it and navigating it which is frustratingly similar but you're right in that the structures um in the sort of the power structures that she's working within have at least shifted and the concept of trying to be accommodating for women or not wanting to look like you're sexist is something that has changed because in the structures that she's talking about, especially at university, there seems to be a odd feeling um, in the people running the system that it's not weird to say, oh, but because you're a woman, this or like, do we make allowances for the women or this kind of thing? Um, so at least the language has changed and what you should at least be trying to achieve as somebody in power it seems to be a bit different no absolutely no that, that makes a lot of sense I think also specifically about the um just as you mentioned her doing English at Oxford I remember reading an article a couple months ago celebrating 50 years since um women were allowed in like most of the colleges in in Cambridge and that when they were unsure about what to do about these new female students coming in, they thought they would make them at home by making a sewing room and spent all of their like women's budget on buying sewing machines for the sewing room so that when they got stressed oh. out by the Oxbridge workload, they could Great. just sew things and it would make them happy. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that no, yeah, incredibly similar things happening at the time. Um, for example, um, the frustrations that she then goes on to talk about in terms of having the same degree valued in the same way, even though they wrote the same essays. There's a point um where she's trying to contribute to a local magazine about um literally just things that are happening in the women's colleges, like netball matches they might have won normal sort of like sports fixtures concerts that are going on just like everyday sort of student achievements mm -hmm. and it existed um this sort of concept of reporting it to this local magazine um at Oxford for all of the men's colleges and had for ages and the only thing that she'd particularly in fact actually the editor of the magazine had reached out to her saying I've seen some of your journalism it's really interesting would you mind writing a column about what's happening in the women's colleges because we don't know about it 
And it was shut down by the principals of her college because they weren't sure it was a good idea to expose the like frivolous things that the girls were getting up to. And they weren't sure if it was going to look proper and this sort of really unnecessary weirdness. Um, And she wasn't able to write. So thankfully, the editor of the newspaper went, that's incredibly weird. Um, But you are still a great journalist and poet. So would you like to contribute in other ways? So she did. Um, But yeah, just she wasn't even writing like a rageful feminist column she was fully just going to explain normal things that were happening in her college which obviously means that from the outside perspective nobody has any idea of the achievements of the women in the women's colleges even though they are completely parallel to what's happening in the men's colleges at the time um which really doesn't help with the movement in general (laughs) yeah that i definitely saw what you mean about these like certain characters being really familiar yeah i could have been reading yesterday i've got like four different men in charge of education have come to mind that would absolutely have had that reaction had we asked them today to do a similar thing um when we sort of celebrate remembrance day as well do you feel like women have been sort of erased from this history as well because you mentioned how the reception between the soldier and the nurse was different for example um would you say that this is something which continues to this day so how in what other ways would you say that her book is relevant for us today and in which ways have women been erased from the narratives of remembrance yeah absolutely I think that's a really important point so on remembrance day we often hear a lot about the sacrifices of the soldiers on the front which makes complete sense but obviously the people who were being called to fight and who were even allowed to fight were all men however the fact that there were women present on the front lines in the form of nurses is usually kind of left out of the conversation um But yeah, as I said before, like they faced the same dangers, like in her crossing to Malta, she was on a ship that was targeted by German U-boats. And that's entirely she could have been a victim of the war in the same way as all the soldiers who were on the same boat were victims of the war. Um, So, yeah, it's odd. It's odd that they get left out of the narrative in a a weird way. Um, Her reception on coming home in the end, she was saying that she she mentioned that only one person in the speeches that she heard in the immediate aftermath of the war actually mentioned um, a thank you to the VADs who were on the front lines, all the others, um, even literally on having returned months previously. Like we're talking, I mean, December and January of <laughs> 1918 to 1919. Um, in the speeches of thanks to the people who served in the war, even the women were immediately being left out of that that whole concept already similarly afterwards um there were different concessions she felt um on returning to oxford for having missed time at the university because she was you know serving in a war um as were the men um who were trying to return to finish their studies um and she was saying uh, i found a, the quote for it as well yeah so she goes had i been an ex-serviceman their concessions would have seemed obvious enough and were indeed granted to every male who wanted to take advantage of them but oxford women after mr h-a-l fisher's pronouncement were never officially regarded as patriots whatever their service might have been so it's kind of immediately obvious that while the war was happening and they were in desperate need of nurses to be in an incredibly dangerous position suddenly women were incredibly valuable women were strong as men women were fully capable um they were capable of learning incredibly rapidly all the medical information that they needed to be nurses they were capable of surviving incredibly harsh and complicated situations and circumstances on the other hand the minute they got home and it was no longer compulsory to use women for the war effort suddenly the treatment of them was completely different and they were 
not trying hard enough or like you know of course they were in the war like so were the men whatever get over it um so the attitudes when they came back were no longer needed as a resource um is kind of obvious Mm -hmm. and tangible and something that I think possibly happens a lot in lots of different sectors covid nurses comes to mind (laughs) the patriarchal agenda just shifts and changes as it wants to yeah Absolutely. And kind of what Camille was saying about the jobs um, that women were doing during the war when the men weren't at home, or at least there were fewer men at home, um, they were obviously fully capable of doing because they did them successfully for four years. But as soon as um, there were enough men returning home, suddenly these structures sort of got dismantled and we forgot about them. And the question about whether women were intelligent enough and capable enough to vote came back to the table. Um, Although all the evidence for them being fully capable of doing things was, you know, in front of everyone. Um, So it just goes to show how women can be used as a sort of national resource when needed um, and ignored when convenient. Yes. Um, you mentioned as well voting. What impact um, would you say women's work during the World War had on their emancipation and their enfranchisement? Yeah, I think it made, um, I'm just sort of putting my GCSE history hat back on because I'm Same. pretty sure we covered some of this. Um, but yeah, no, I think it made the difference of um, unavoidable evidence of women being capable of doing things that previously because they hadn't had the opportunity to perform in those ways, it was easy for politicians to go, well, we don't know if women would be able to do this. We don't know if women would be able to hold down jobs or make important intellectual decisions or be active in society or any of these things. Um, The weird um, misogynist um, expectations of women that they were only able to run homes and raise children as if those weren't actually quite difficult things sometimes um, were obviously the only experience that people had of what women were able to do because that's what all they were allowed to do so I think after the war there was a sort of insurmountable amount of evidence um, of what women were capable of doing when given the chance and I think that definitely helped with trying to get them the vote Um, but yeah that doesn't mean it was easy and not all women had the vote as well when they came back from the war Um, it was still age and land um, dependent I think um, more so than it was for men yeah absolutely I think women it was over 30s who who owned property but I think it, it's interesting as well that um in France the vote only came after the second world war not even after the first world war so the women who are in the same situation as you described if they were Britain had to do it twice before being seen as in any way worthy of of casting a vote to do with politics deeply frustrating it goes to show that it's got everything to do with who's in power and making the policies and nothing to do with the actual qualifications and capabilities of the women involved yeah absolutely um it's kind of telling of like capitalism as well like how well does the woman fit into the capitalist system because obviously they wouldn't have seen this sort of unpaid labor as labor yeah so like work in the home domestic work child rearing childbirth all of that it's not really seen as valuable work in capitalist society so I feel like especially at this time as well when it was properly emerging I feel like especially then it would have been like what role do you have in making capitalist society function and obviously that was sort of proved to everyone um during the wars so I feel like that sort of plays a part as well yeah 
yeah absolutely and the the narrative as well of like women only starting to work because of the first world war and it being like it's only considered work because it's what men had were doing and then stopped doing whereas like anything that they've been working for either unpaid or paid labor beforehand just kind of is not even emphasized in in history textbooks now yeah the other thing I think we can all take away from Vera Britton's um, experience is that what's going on on the political level is always going to impact your personal life. So what was happening on a European and especially on the English governmental scale in the run up to the war obviously destroyed a lot of Vera Britton's youth, hence the title Testament of Youth, and resulted in PTSD that haunted her throughout her life and obviously the death of her closest friends, her fiance and her brother. So the one thing that she took away from it, and I think we can too, is to be very careful about researching the people that you want to vote for in politics and to make sure that your vote is cast for somebody who respects A, women and B, nurses and the NHS, which is something that is a direct parallel in our current lives. um, And I think is something that we need to remember if we want to make an impact, think about how you vote in the next elections. So I have a couple of concluding points about why the book is a really relevant thing today that I think it brings up a lot of things as we've already touched on that are just as frustrating now and haven't been resolved, especially with her age bracket. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that she managed to vent her feelings, but also make an incredible political stand through the publication of this book, through the writing of a lot of journalism and through the publication of poetry. And I think it goes to show a lot of what she was publishing at the time when she was at university was through student newspapers and student publications like the new blog and (laughs) podcast. Um, And I think it's really important to keep registering women's stories and using your voice to make a increased documentation of the experiences of women because in her case these are stories that we would otherwise literally never have heard Um, I would have had no idea about the stuff that she was going through and the sort of everyday frustrating misogyny that she experienced if she hadn't written it down and had it published and that's something that I think we can definitely take away today um, and keep fighting the same fight basically yeah that's a wonderful note to end on do you want to repeat the name of the book and the author just at the end so listeners can get a recap so it's testament of youth by vera Britton. give it a read it's brilliant um it'll take a while but it's so good <laughs> that is all for today's episode thank you so much for tuning in we hope you have learned something new and if you feel inspired to get involved we welcome you to email us at admin at newslondon.co.uk we are always looking for new people to interview and new articles to put onto our blog which you can find at www.newslondon.co.uk you can also check out our instagram at news underscore ldn that's all from us this was the news podcast (laughs) 